Welcome to Nursing Sound Reports, a podcast offered by the Iowa Board of Nursing. I'm your host, Ann Ryan. My guest today is Kevin Gabbert, Opioid Initiatives Director at the Iowa Department of Public Health. Today, Kevin is going to talk to us about recent trends in the opioid epidemic and how this affects the nursing profession. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, uh, as the Opioid Initiatives Director, it's my responsibility to not only oversee some of the opioid efforts taking place at the Department of Public Health, but also help lead some of the initiatives, things like naloxone access, uh, increasing access for that particular medication, uh, expansion of medication for opioid use disorder treatment, things like that. And how long have you been with IDPH? I've been with IDPH for about 15 years. Okay. And have you always worked in the field of opioids? Uh, I started off uh, almost 30 years ago uh, as a substance use disorder counselor, and I did that for about 15 years at a small hospital in rural Iowa, and then uh, had an opportunity to come work for the state and help launch some new programs uh, focusing on recovery support services, helping individuals in recovery. Uh, And it was during that time that I took on the position as the project director for a a grant called uh, MAP-PADOA. It's medication-assisted treatment for prescription drugs for opioid abuse. Um, And uh, during that time, uh, got more familiar with opioid use disorders and uh, kind of took off from there. That sounds like a journey. How did you become interested in the topic? Uh, To be honest, it came about by accident, Um, or maybe it was a part of my boss's master plan, Uh, but uh, I was asked to attend a conference in place of our, what what they call a SOTA, State Opioid Treatment Authority, and uh, the the person in that position was out on uh, medical leave, and so they asked me if I would go to the conference that was coming up and attend in in their place, and I said, sure. Uh, First thing is, you know, what's a SOTA? Uh, And so after I figured out what that was, I said, yeah, I'll go and attend. Uh, And so I went and learned a lot, uh, learned about... uh, the treatment approach for opioid use disorders, learned about upcoming grant opportunities and things like that. And so then I came back and I heard from, found out from my boss that the person that previously had this position as the SOTA had, uh, would not be coming back uh, and uh, had left employment at IDPH. And so they said, since you know so much about opioid use disorders from your recent attendance at the conference, guess what? You're the new SOTA for <laughs> Iowa. And so since that time, I've been doing my best to learn more uh, and, uh, and help implement programs and, and help address this issue uh, because it, uh, it unfortunately has become a more and more significant issue in our state. Can you tell us what the opioid epidemic is? Sure. Uh, the term opioid em- epidemic is used to describe the current crisis being experienced in the U.S. as it pertains to opioid misuse, uh, more specifically the number of deaths involving opioids occurring in our country. Can you tell us then how the opioid epidemic is measured? So I think there are several ways that you can measure the epidemic. Uh, For example, uh, it's estimated that the economic burden of this crisis is more than $78 billion per year. And that's when you include costs of healthcare, lost productivity, treatment, and criminal justice involvement. That said, I think the most significant uh, and unfortunate measurement is the increasing loss of life taking place. And a recent report from the CDC it's estimated that there were more than 108,000 drug overdoses in the U.S. in 2021. That's roughly a 16% increase from the previous year. And what's more concerning is that opioids account for over two-thirds of that number, and the majority of those deaths involving opioids involve an illicitly manufactured opioids like fentanyl. That sounds like a significant 
problem and increase. Definitely. Can you give us a little history in the usage of opioids since the beginning of the epidemic? Sure. Opioids have had sort of a cyclical existence in the U.S., and it really um, has been an ongoing lessons learned relationship, and there's been several paradigm shifts that have occurred over the way or, or during the time. So opioids can be traced uh, in the U.S. back to the Civil War when morphine was used for injured soldiers. Uh, then in the late 1800s, concerns started to rise with morphine abuse, and this began the search for alternatives that were not as concerning uh, and didn't have as many side effects. Unfortunately, many of the alternatives that they were looking at uh, had just as many shortfalls, uh, for example, heroin being one of the alternatives that was uh, pursued at the time. In 1916, we had oxycodone was introduced. In the 1920s, though, doctors again started to avoid prescribing opioids. They were concerned about abuse and addiction concerns. And, uh, and this rate or this lack of prescribing opioids lasted for quite some time. Uh, then in the 1960s, though, we started to see a resurgence of heroin attributed to U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Uh, then in 1973, President Nixon declared the war on drugs. Uh, then in the 1980s, again, you know, we had that paradigm shift, and doctors developed what has been referred to as kind of an opiophobia, meaning a fear of prescribing opiates because of concerns about uh, abuse potential. Uh, then in the 1990s, everything changed, and that was uh, a lot to do with uh, advocacy groups, uh, a lot to do with some flawed research that was taking place, and marketing and uh, the introduction of Purdue Pharma and OxyContin. In the 90s, this made headlines and national news. Can you, can you break down for us how it went from there? Sure. Uh, so in the 1990s, we saw a rise in patient advocacy and special interest groups, and they were all focused on increasing use of opioids, that pain wasn't being dressed en enough, uh, and that physicians needed to do more. Uh, and they based a lot of these findings or the fact that uh, this was needed uh, on research that was um, later to be revealed as, as flawed. Uh, so in the 1990s, we started to see another paradigm shift, and a lot of this was based on a research article uh, by a physician and an assistant uh, called, uh, it was Porter and Jick, uh, and this was an article that was in the New England Journal of Medicine, and basically what it said was that out of over 11,800 hospitalized medical patients, there were only four cases that had concerns with addiction. Now, there were a lot of faults with this study, and this primarily was because this was an opinion piece. There was no peer review that took place. Uh, the study group also were patients in a hospital, so short stays. Many following surgical procedures were receiving an opioid. Some of the individuals in the study had only one dose of an opioid. There were no outpatient prescriptions provided. Uh, and again, you know, this was information that a lot of organizations later used as fact and kind of, again, ground zero to say opioids are safe. You know, there's no reason for us to be concerned. The concern was, uh, again, you know, like I said, there, it wasn't peer-reviewed. And also, this was, you know, the 1980, or in 1980, this was pre-internet. And so the New England Journal of Medicine didn't put its full archives online until 2010. So unless you had an original copy of the letter uh, or the, the research study, the only way to track it down was to find a physical copy in an academic library. Unfortunately, though, uh, the article became legendary, and it was cited in over, over 600 times in various studies and by those wanting to advance the use of opioids. Groups like the American Pain Society, again, you know, an advocacy group, they were the ones that were responsible for developing that um, the phrase, you know, pain is the fifth vital sign. And this all kind of led up to what happened in 1994, and that was Purdue Pharma. You know, Purdue Pharma uh, started testing a new drug called OxyContin, and it was a
later released in 1996, uh, cited as being safe because it was time release. Uh, but what accompanied this particular release of this medication was the aggressive marketing campaign. And a lot of individuals will say that uh, you know, what took place uh, was unethical, uh, but at the time, you know, it, it wasn't seen as that way. It was seen as this is going to be the, the new approach or the, um, the new way to uh, effectively treat pain for individuals. Uh, the concern was, you know, obviously now hindsight is 2020. Um, at the time, opioid prescriptions had been increasing by about two to three million per year. In 1996, when OxyContin was released, they increased by about eight million per year. So, Kevin, what was the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and organizations like JACO saying at this time? So it's really interesting that you bring that up. Uh, the Center for, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they developed their value-based purchasing program around this time. And hospitals were scored based on their performance on various measures. And these included things like patient scoring of their satisfaction with their pain control. Because CMS attached reimbursement penalties to patient satisfaction, some doctors believed that they were being held directly responsible for patient satisfaction and felt pressured to prescribe opioids with patients that demanded them. And so for like Joint Commission, uh, they issued a publication saying there's no evidence that addiction is a significant issue when persons are given opioids for pain control. Uh, this came out in roughly in 2000. Uh, the concerns were that uh, doctors were saying that obviously that there were concerns, uh, but uh, the Joint Commission was saying it was inaccurate and exaggerated. It just so happens that the publication, though, that they put out was funded by Purdue Pharma. So that sounds like just the perfect storm all happening. Absolutely. What are the current trends in Iowa in regards to you know prevalence and treatment admissions and deaths? So there are several indicators that assist us when we're looking at trends in relation to opioids. One of the most telling uh, and a clear sign that we still have a lot of work to do is the number of deaths involving opioids. In 2017, uh, we had roughly 206 individuals uh, or deaths involving opioids. Unfor and, and gratefully, uh, in 2018, we had a 33.5% decrease. So it went to 137 deaths involving opioids. Unfortunately, ever since that time, the numbers have increased. In 2019, there was a 14.5% increase. In 2020, we had a 35.6% increase. In 2021, we had a 21.1% increase. This equates to an 88.3% increase in the number of deaths involving opioids for that four-year time period. In relation to this is the role of illicitly manufactured synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Of the 258 deaths involving opioids in 2021, 83% of those involved an illicitly manufactured synthetic opioid like fentanyl. Now, some of the more positive things we're seeing. Uh, according to SAMHSA, Iowa has over 500 medical professionals that have completed additional education that allows them to prescribe buprenorphine products for the purpose of treating an opioid use disorder. Now, buprenorphine is one of the three FDA-approved products for that purpose. To give some historical context, when we started monitoring the number of Wade practitioners in 2015, we only had 31. So that's a huge increase. Uh, in the same time frame, we've gone from eight locations in the state where an individual can participate in methadone dosing to 19. Uh, the state's PDMP, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, indicates a continued reduction in the number of opioid prescriptions being dispensed. And in 2021, we dispensed more naloxone than in any previous year through multiple initiatives. It sounds like we're making some progress. 
in our state. Absolutely. And other things that we're excited about coming uh, on the horizon, one of the things we're most excited about is the implementation of syndromic surveillance in Iowa. Uh, This initiative has the potential to save lives by allowing us to, in almost real time, identify the occurrence of outbreaks, uh, overdoses occurring. Uh, We can target interventions that previously would have been extremely difficult to do if we would have had to depend on the inpatient-outpatient data. What data is used for the syndromic surveillance? Well, currently with syndromic surveillance not being available, uh, we have to depend on data, uh, inpatient, outpatient data from hospitals that oftentimes are three to six months in arrears. So when we get this information, to be able to actually uh, launch any kind of an intervention um, isn't realistic simply because of the time that's elapsed. With syndromic surveillance, we can find out, create alerts, uh, particular outbreaks, and look at uh, targeting intervention practices or prevention efforts uh, in as close to real time as we've ever been able to do so. So what are IDPH's goals related to the epidemic right now? So our three goals when it comes to addressing opioid use disorder, or at least our guiding principles are reduce opioid misuse, prevent deaths involving opioids, and expand availability of medication for opioid use disorder. And in the past, it used to be a stigma to have an opioid use disorder or other substance use disorder, and it feels like that's changing. Is, is that true? Do I think it's changing? Yes. Uh, but do I think we still have a long way to go? Again, the answer is yes. Uh, while there are civil protections under the Americans with Disability Acts for individuals with a substance use disorder or those that take medication for an opio- opioid use disorder, stigma still exists. That's why we're doing everything we can to educate others about opioid misuse. Every chance we get, we're presenting to interested groups about the history of opioids, brain chemistry, how dependency happens, the rise and danger of illicit forms of opioids, uh, the benefit of medication for opioid use disorder, the list goes on and on. Uh, We're also doing what we can on a larger scale, though, through our various media campaigns. One we're supporting right now is called It Starts With Us, and this utilizes true Iowa champions in the fields of medicine, law enforcement and corrections that speak openly about how the change and how others with substance use issues are viewed starts with them and their professions. It sounds like it will take a community to respond to all the aspects of this epidemic. What are ways in which nurses are helping address IDPH's goals? Well, let me first start by saying nurses are rock stars. Uh, We we need nurses. Uh, We have SUD treatment programs that are having difficulties offering certain levels of care because of a lack of nurses. We have opioid treatment programs and medication units that are requesting waivers to reduce their hours of service because they don't have nursing coverage for dosing. And we definitely need more nurse practitioners that are and other certified nurses that are willing to be, become buprenorphine prescribers, either in collaboration with one of our substance use disorder providers or as part of their established practice. Uh, basically, if we don't have nurses, we don't have programs to offer. For our listeners, I'll take this opportunity to point out that the prescribing guidelines for nurse practitioners come from the specific chapters in the Iowa Code, Chapter 7.6, in regards to prescribing controlled substances, and Chapter 7.7 regarding the use of the prescription monitoring program. Nurse practitioners who prescribe controlled substances have a few requirements to provide that level of care. First, they need to maintain an active registration with the DEA, and then they also need to uh, register with the Controlled Substances Act and then also complete 
two contact hours on the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. Kevin, has the requirement for training to prescribe buprenorphine changed recently? It has. Uh, the Going back, you know, the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, or CARA, in 2016 made nurse practitioners eligible to receive training and prescribe buprenorphine. Then in April of 2021, uh, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services created some needed flexibility in regards to the practice guidelines for the administration of buprenorphine. What this flexibility did is under certain conditions, it made a variety of practitioners, including nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, certified registered nurse anesthetists, and certified nurse midwives exempt from the additional training requirements needed to prescribe some medication for opioid use disorder products. Specifically, the exemption allows the practitioners to treat up to 30 patients with an opioid use disorder by prescribing or by using buprenorphine for opioid use disorder treatment. Have you seen an increase in the number of individuals being treated after the requirements changed? Unfortunately, that's information that we don't have, and that's because these individuals are being seen quite often in primary care settings, and that's not a data set or a, uh, a group of providers that we collect information from historically. Uh, what we have seen, though, is with the passage of the CARA legislation in 2016 and the addition of nurse practitioners and PAs being able to prescribe opioid uh, use disorder products, uh, we had a roughly a 30% increase in the number of prescribers in the state of Iowa. That sounds dramatic. It's very significant. Again, I can't say it enough. You know, we need nurses. So what are some of the other tools or resources that practitioners use when treating individuals with opioid use disorders? I think first and foremost, uh, it needs to be utilization of the state's prescription drug monitoring program, uh, being able to assess whether or not you know, that individual is appropriate for that medication based on other medications that they may or may not be receiving. Other options or other resources available are through things like the provider's clinical support system. This was the educational requirements that historically was required for new providers that wanted to get waivered or that received the data 2000 waiver so that they could prescribe buprenorphine. Another resource available is uh, educational opportunities on prescribing medications for opioid use disorder. Uh, and this is through organizations like the Providers Clinical Support System or PCSS. And this is the training that most practitioners would participate in uh, that were seeking their buprenorphine waivered license previously. Uh, if you're working with someone who themselves, a family member, or a friend has an opioid use disorder, make sure they know naloxone is available for free uh, at most participating pharmacies and through naloxoneiowa.org. And then finally, of course, uh, Your Life Iowa, the website, is a great resource, not only on education or information, but also on connecting individuals with help. What do you see as the role of nurses and nurse practitioners over the next few years in this epidemic? Uh, again, I think if we don't have nurses, then we don't have programs. Uh, we need to have nurses available that are uh, either dosing in medication units or opioid treatment programs. We need to have nurses available for our licensed treatment programs, especially residential programs that need to have nursing staff available. Uh, and then again, if we're going to continue to address this issue, we need to have nurses available that are willing to accept opioid use disorder clients and prescribe some of those medications that are available to them. Kevin, do you have any parting remarks for nurses before we sign off today? I, I would just say that I know right now, you know, nurses are in extremely high demand. Unfortunately, our treatment programs, uh, they can't compete with some of the larger hospital systems. Uh, so when it comes to things like 
hiring bonuses and, and stay bonuses, things like that, uh, our programs quite often operate on shoestring budgets. I think the thing that I would ask is that uh, you know, think about you know the, the work that we're doing. You know, think about the services that we're trying to provide, and think about you know it may not be that it's a full-time position that you're wanting to look at, uh, but maybe it's you know something that you would be able to help out with. You know, I don't know any treatment programs that would turn down a nurse that would come to them and say, hey. I'd like to work here one day a week. Uh, we need nurses. You know, it's it's as simple as that. Kevin, thank you so much for your time with us today. You have given us some valuable information regarding the state of the opioid epidemic in Iowa and ways in which nurses are serving on the front lines and how they can continue to serve. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. If you or someone you know might be struggling with an opioid or other substance use disorder, you can find resources at yourlifeiowa.org. If you are a licensed nurse or nursing student, please contact the Iowa Nurse Assistance Program at 515-425-4008 or through our website at nursing.iowa.gov. You can also look back at previous episodes that covered INAP in greater detail and are a great resource. If you have additional questions related to this topic, you can find links to all of the resources in our show notes. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms or through our website at nursing.iowa.gov.